Hey
he was killed and also that was caught on video and that was tried to be covered up as well by the local law enforcement and then last but not least i believe george floyd is probably the one that really tilted some of the things this year in regards to the protests that occurred but he was also murdered on camera by a police officer who essentially kneeled on his neck kneeled on his neck um i can't remember the exact amount of time lex you might could you recall that yeah, I don't remember, but it was several minutes. It was a, it was a long minutes, time. Sure. on his neck. Um, he kept saying he can't breathe. He can't breathe. He can't breathe. Um, the officer never removed the pressure from his neck, and he was uh, ended up being murdered by suffocation. Um, and also, um, if you think back on earlier in this decade, we had Eric Garner, who was also choked to death by police, and said the same thing while he was being choked to death: "I can't breathe. I can't breathe." And in both circumstances. Neither of the police officers um, decided that it made sense to relieve pressure, um, but they continued to chokehold, continued to kneel on um, the necks of Eric Garner or George Floyd. And um, after this tons of deaths by police brutality, 2020, uh, with COVID, people are already fed up, people are already sick. A lot of people were dying specifically in the African-American community because our community has been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. So I think... Um, with everything and everything coming together as the perfect storm uh, in the mix for the Black Lives Matter uh, movement to, I won't say resurface because it's always been surface, but to add additional fuel to the fire. And that's when you saw tons of protests for, I think, almost a two-week period all across the nation and even, even internationally as well. Yeah, thank you, Kenny. I actually, when I first learned about the um, BLIM, which is also from the... Um, um, the news and then i started to look in like i google googled it i searched on the blm and i saw a lot of um, videos on the youtube about the police um, brutality especially against two uh, black people um but to be honest because for for folks on um the listener on our show um they're mostly coming from um asian asia and then actually we have a very different cultural background uh, we, in terms of the um, race diversity, it's pretty simple um, in Asia. So it's kind of difficult to imagine what kind of difficulties or um, you can say like discriminations that you have, well, you have been faced through um, your life. So I think if it's possible, could you, um, both of y'all can share um, some experience with us um, when you were facing sort of like discrimination um, in your life. Let her let you leave. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I won't uh, necessarily share a specific experience, but what I'll talk about is how traumatizing seeing Black people murdered are is, is for us. So within, when you're, when you're growing up as a Black child in America, you know, our parents, they really do try to prepare us for the world. They tell us the truth about how the world sees us. And they want to, you know, help us to figure out how to navigate that. And they teach us how to love ourselves and love our Blackness, even though we see so much in the world, in the media, that tells us that we shouldn't love who we are. And... When we see these, all these different people being killed, 
and we see the different ways in which Black people are discriminated against in education, in our professional lives, just across the board. You know, and you think about all of the things that have happened throughout history. There's so much trauma there that actually gets passed down to us through generations. And every time that we see one of us get murdered, it re-traumatizes us all over again. And to feel like we have to, to even have to say that our lives matter, we don't want to have to say that. We want people to just know, we want people to just know that, but because these things keep happening and it's so clear that our lives are not treated as if they matter to so many people, because when these things happen, a lot of people, they turn, they turn a blind eye, um, they make up excuses and reasons for um, why that black person was murdered or what they, or what they should have been doing differently instead of putting the onus on the murderers who are doing this. And so I think that that's really important to just like recognize like the, the psychological and emotional and physical trauma that this puts on us every time that this happens and to know that there has been no accountability. Yeah, uh, I think Lex hits home on so many strong points. And there are things that I think I want to mention on this podcast, so to make sure that you guys' audience has a strong understanding of the history, um, why Black why Black Lives Matter is important, but also, you know, why is this something that has to occur? If we think back on the history of America, um, much of the history of America gets left out of education, uh, gets left out of the textbooks. So growing up in America, whether you're white or you're Black, you likely aren't going to learn the truth about uh, the history of the country. But the truth is that the country was built off of white supremacy. It was built off of racism. And the same individuals who are screaming Black Lives Matter, Our Lives Matter, are the same bodies uh, who actually built the nation off of free labor. We think back to 1619 when um, which is the big year that we say the first slaves were actually brought to America. Um, since then, black bodies have been the free labor that has built this country. Some of the biggest companies to date, some of the strongest financial companies to date, and some of the banks in America were created off of free labor by black people, black and brown bodies. And to this day, um, we've had we've been through slavery, the abolishment of slavery. We went from there, went to the Jim Crow area, era where black folks were still seen as unhumane. I think it's three-fifths of a person they were looking at black people at, not even, not even a few, a full human being. Um, we, go, we went from there to the civil rights era where, you know, we had folks like Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, all these individuals fighting for the rights for black Americans. And at the same time, we're still being brutalized by police. We still didn't have full rights, couldn't vote. Um, so there's a very long and, and documented history of discrimination uh, of black people in America. We also go into policies that have been enacted by the government that kept black people from being able to achieve wealth by not being able to access loans, not being able to vote. There's something called redlining that's helped create um, impoverished neighborhoods where mostly black people have been living. So um, just thinking back through the history of America, 
And what needs to be told is that the Black Lives Movement matter isn't something that is new. It's something that we've been fighting for for basically the life of that the life of time that Black Americans have been here, um, and we just haven't been able to get our just due. So uh, Black Lives Matter is important because when we reflect on the history of America, um, white supremacy has run it, has run it, colonialism has run it, and conquered. And the, the idea of conquering other individuals has run it. And today, uh, essentially, you're seeing tons of people who are fed up, um, the younger generations and the older generations who are fed up and really want to see some change. Uh, I really appreciate you guys speaking of the whole, like, holistic view of how we um, view this problem and, like, sharing your experiences. So... As Jacob mentioned, actually, like the most of Asian uh, countries, we are kind of, in terms of the race diversity, we lack of diversity. So sometimes it's not easy for us how to react about these problems in the United States. Because maybe we, some of us, like don't have much knowledge, or just some of us feels we are a little bit outsider of these problems. So sometimes it's not easy how to react or how to ally you guys. In terms of this perspective, do you have any expects for the like expect us like Asian students or in, in, international students to do something about this issue or not? So I would say, well, first I want to say that I appreciate you all talking about the Black Lives Matter movement on your podcast. I think that's such an important step that you all are doing to be able to expose people in your network to this issue who, you know, normally probably wouldn't hear about it. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, I would say on the most basic level, to start learning about the history of Black folks in this country and just different ways in which we have been oppressed. Um, and really take time to do your research because there's so many resources out there, whether you just want to listen to something, whether you want to watch a movie, whether you prefer to read, there is something for every person to meet you where you are. Um, so yes, taking the time to learn is a great first step. And I would say the second thing would be to learn what it means to be an ally. You brought that up, Jay, about you all want to you all want to learn what it means to be an ally. And mm -hmm. there's lots of resources on that, too. But I would say the main to me, the main part of being an ally is learning how to recognize when something wrong is being said or done and speaking up when you see people saying or doing things that are hurtful. A lot of people, you know, when they hear someone say something negative about Black people, for example, um, or Latinos, um, or, L or anybody in the LGBTQ community, they don't, they just let it slide because they don't want, they're afraid to make the, the situation awkward or they hear their own parents and family members saying things that they know are wrong and they don't call it out. 
And so I would say like one of the most important things you can do is to learn how to speak up in those situations and just start to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because those are going to be, it is uncomfortable to call those things out. That would be my hope of what folks would do. Yeah. And I think Lex hits the nail on the head here. Um, I think any students that come to America, whether Asian students, um, students from Africa, Australia, really, I think um, regardless of the location you're coming from, if you're coming to America with the idea of potentially staying here, um, working here, then it's important to understand the context that you're living in. And in doing so, to Lex's point, learning as much as possible. And once you do learn, continue to have those kind of conversations. Um, continue to stand up and, su and support what you believe is right. Um, what I believe is right may not be what you believe is right. And I think that's okay. I'm not gonna, I'm not here to tell anybody um, how they should believe in regards to human rights, civil rights, et cetera. Um, I think that falls on the individual, but I do think it's important to be educated. And once you are educated, then let your, your you know, moral compass help you make the decisions on how you're going to participate in, you know, the democratic process that is here or whether how you're going to participate in terms of standing up and using your time to volunteer for certain services or towards certain programs, how you may donate any uh, funds or capital that you may decide to donate, how you're going to interact with your friends, your classmates, et cetera. Um, all that's going to be important. But to Lex's point, it absolutely starts with education. Yeah, so for me, um, coming to U.S. to study MBA, I think the, like the academic is not just the part that I'm focusing on. I also wanted to um, embrace the different culture, to learn the different culture. Um, so, so I think uh, many of us um, as international students, we come in to here um, is not is to learn, is to embrace. Um, so, agree that that's really important. And as you both mentioned, maybe the first step that we can do is to start to um, really to learn like the history of um, the the like the Black Lives Matter, um, oh no, or everything um, among these topics. So um, could you recommend any kind of like resources? Um, it could be like a movie or a book or even a website that for people who are interested in um, learning this topic to 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 looking for. Absolutely. So one of the I love that Kenne brought up the year 1619 because one of my favorite podcasts and favorite resources to recommend is a podcast called 1619. And as mm -hmm. Kenne mentioned, 1619 was the very first year that enslaved Africans were brought to America. And this podcast is an absolutely amazing job of reframing America's history that most of us, we do not get taught these things of what is real and all the things that happen in America's history. And so it really puts all those things into context of and explaining the consequences of slavery that still impact us to this very day. A lot of people like to pretend like, oh, slavery was so long ago because it, you know, legally ended in 1865, but don't want to talk about and take the time to learn and acknowledge 
everything that happened as a result of slavery. So many things that are happening today, even within just like of how our businesses work and our financial institutions started during slavery. So it's so important to, you know, learn about that time and the time after the time after it can they brought up the Jim Crow era and the civil rights movement. There's so many things that are continuing to influence us to this day. So I highly, highly recommend that podcast. It's super, super good. And yeah, just very easy to listen to. It's actually like riveting. And I'll add a few resources as well uh, to that list. I'd say check out the 13th, which which is a movie on Netflix. I believe Ava DuVernay, who uh, produced it, directed it, et cetera. She's an amazing individual artist, a creative um, in that doing a really good job of putting out visual projects that help tell the story about uh, just the history of racism, discrimination, and oppression in America. So the 13th, I know, can be found on Netflix, potentially in other areas as well. And then um, another book that I really like, I actually haven't finished the book because actually it's kind of of a tough read um, because as you're reading it, it's heavy. Um, But the the New Jim Crow by... I have it right here, Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow, is also an amazing book and talks about the history of mass incarceration in America, which has been another tool and technique used to oppress uh, black people. So some people call it the new form of slavery, but mass incarceration. Uh, so The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander is a really good book that details the history of how um, black and brown people have essentially been funneled into the prison system once slavery ended, um, and all by design, and all by to allow corporations to profit off of black and brown bodies uh, here in America. So again, the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and then the Thirteenth, which is a movie, a fact documentary on Netflix. All right, thank you so much, uh, Kenny and Lex. So we we will put um, those resources you all just mentioned in our show notes. So for the audience, they can just easily to um, to look up um, on the show notes. We will have the link so you can just easily to go to the Netflix or um, the podcast. Or... So once again, thank you so much uh, to be on the show and to tell us uh, your experience and that the people learn on, on our podcast learn more about the BOM. You are so welcome. Yeah. Anytime, I'm happy to join. Best of luck on the rest of the journey with NBA Asians and looking forward to tuning in to further episodes. Thank you. So um, let's have a quick break and we will be back with the interview. Today, we're going to talk about academic experience during MBA life. Even though many people think MBA programs are about networking and getting a better opportunity for a job, we can't discuss MBA life without academics. Each MBA program promotes their school with specific core classes and numerous electives. Also, having a brief discussion and sharing ideas in the classroom is another attractive feature of MBA. However, there are many difficulties too. You can easily imagine that most of your classmates are competitive enough to beat your grades. Many professors do cold call, which is asking personal opinions to anyone in the class. And many classes require students 
to read case study before the class, which takes a lot of time. So let's welcome today's guest, Ryan Yu, a rising MBA2 student from Harvard Business School to share his academic experience with us. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Jacob. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really nice to have you on our show. We're so excited to learn about your stories. Yeah, I'm super glad to be here. <laughs> so um, before we actually jump into our topic today, let's just learn a little bit about you more. So could you, you know, talk about yourself, um, where you're from, and what did you do before coming to MBA to our audience? Sure. So I was born and raised in Manila, Philippines. Um, I did my undergrad um, in a local school called Ateneo de Manila University. And right after undergrad, I briefly worked in the government, uh, working under the public-private partnership uh, infrastructure team um, in the Department of Finance. After that, I worked at McKinsey based out of the Manila office. Um, I was a business analyst and a senior business analyst out of the Southeast Asia office and briefly did some work um, in Melbourne and in London as well. And right before coming to school, I actually uh, spent a year at a data science consulting company called Thinking Machines, uh, which was based out of the Philippines. I was a product manager and machine learning researcher. Um, and that's kind of where I got the exposure to data science um, and AI and realized that was the path I wanted to pursue um, when I did my MBA. And yeah, here I am. This is my first time living in the U.S. So it's a bit of a culture shock, uh, but overall, it's been a great experience so far. Yeah, so you, uh, you have really amazing background, I would say. So what brought you to, you know, to the MBA and why, you know, why Harvard um, specifically? Yeah, um, so I guess what uh, attracted me uh, to kind of pursuing my MBA was the idea of getting close to the US, um, which is kind of the hub for big tech. I really wanted to get the chance to explore what careers would be like in the US. Um, you know, I like dipping my toes in data science in the Philippines was great, but I wanted to kind of be at the center of it all um, in Silicon Valley. So that was something I really wanted to try to experience. Um, and I felt that doing that in the U.S. would just be like a fantastic opportunity. Um, and I wanted to pursue my MBA initially because it was kind of the next natural step uh, for consultants. Um, folks would typically like go abroad, do their MBA, and then um, come back, get promoted. Um, my my vision for myself was, uh, I guess, along the same lines, but slightly different. Um, I felt that this was an opportunity for me to kind of get a feel for how young people my age who came from different backgrounds all over the world um, got to where they were. I wanted to be in a situation where I could hear these stories um, and share my own as well. Um, and get a feel for, you know, what are kind of the different life paths out there? What are the different options um, that I could potentially explore? Um, so I knew in the back of my head that I wanted to explore tech, but I knew also that I wanted to see what it would be like to, to kind of explore all of these different options that 
kind of the top performing uh, young people from all over the world uh, were were gunning for. And that was something that I wanted to learn. Uh, and I felt that I could uniquely learn from from MBA. Um, and as to like why Harvard specifically, it's just been a personal dream of mine to, to go to school um, in the US. And Harvard has always been kind of uh, at the top of my list in terms of uh, my dream schools. So I'm, I'm really happy I got this chance. I got jealous of you, you know, like Howard is every, every student's dream. <laughs> if, if I can get an admission from Harvard, I'm, I'll we go there. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like it's, uh, honestly, like any top MBA school, uh, will give you like a pretty great set of opportunities. Like I, I was interning, uh, for Google over the summer and like, I've just met people from so many different MBA programs. And honestly, mm-hmm. like getting into a top MBA program uh, just sets you up for success um, regardless. Right. That's true. So like any, like thinking about the top MBA schools, each school has uh, their own merits and advantages. So like it's, it's really important to think about which school is really fit for me and for the incoming students. So let us dive into our topic, academics. So what is the biggest difference in terms of academic experience between studying in the United States and in your country, Philippines? Yeah, um, so I, I can only compare this to the undergrad experience, obviously, because I didn't um, pursue like any master's degree in the Philippines. But in my undergrad, the style of teaching has always been very lecture-based. Um, so it would be a professor coming in, uh, teaching like a, a particular topic over the course of like 60 minutes. And that would be it. I mean, there would be occasional um, back and forth with students um, to, to clarify any questions. But for the most part, it was a teacher kind of delivering a, a planned piece of conversation to the students. Um, and yeah, I, so I was guilty of this. I, I, before coming to school, I actually taught an operations research class in my undergrad. Um, and so my style of teaching was very, um, I, I had lecture notes prepared. I had a PowerPoint presentation and I would run through the lecture um, and kind of pause in between to just check and make sure my class was understanding. But for the most part, it was lecture style. Um, in MBA, specifically at HBS, the format is very much driven by the case method. Um, which is everyone kind of drives the conversation. Um, so it's up to the students to facilitate the content and the professor does more facilitation. So trying to make sure that each student has an equal opportunity to speak up and also students who have relevant experience in the topic at hand for that day get the opportunity to speak. So it's it's extremely different um, for a number of reasons. One is um, the, the class size is huge. So in undergrad um, in the Philippines, like we would have maybe 40 or 50 students in one class. Here we have 90 um, and everyone is trying to say something. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to, um, you know, try to fit your kind of piece in and try to time when you raise your hand so that you can participate in in a situation where you can contribute the best. Um, And second, I think, is, um, I guess, just the way that the the class is managed. So I was used to a situation where the professor 
would speak and all I had to do was listen and take notes. Here, it's a very active form of learning where uh, I had to decide when it was time for me to contribute and raise my hand versus when it was time for me to do uh, what they call active listening, which is just sitting back and figuring out, hey, this is the right time for me to to think and hear what my classmates have to say versus this is the time for me to really speak up. And kind of weighing those two things um, in a situation where, you know, everyone is speaking up, there's just a lot more considerations jam-packed into a 90-minute session um, versus me feeling more calm, um, sitting back and taking notes in a, in a typical like lecture-based format. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, it's very different from um, Taiwan as well, which was, which was where I coming from. Um, right. Like you said, the size of the class or like the teaching method was completely different. And also the expectation from the professor are, 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 are also very different. So that actually gives me a lot of times to adjust myself, um, be able to um, embrace this kind of teaching environment. So I think the next question is because um, we've spent pretty much 40 to 50% of our times in the classroom while in MBA. So I wanted to ask you, like, how important do you think the academic is um, in your overall MBA experience? And um, what, what, do you, like, what do you expect or to learn or to get from, from those academic um, experience? Yeah, um, great question. So to be very honest, when I started, um, I I had the mindset of like, oh, academics isn't important. MBA is all about socializing and careers um, and having fun, which is uh, all true. All of those are important. Um, I, I soon realized that there is actually a lot you can get out of the academic experience, but it's a function of what you give, especially um, since the HBS case method really relies on students providing input. The more preparation you give, the more, not just yourself, but the more the class gets out of that experience. So uh, what was interesting to me was that it was kind of a an informal contract with the rest of the class. Like there are times when, you know, some people would not be prepared for class and that's totally fine. Like everyone has different responsibilities. For example, um, you know, sometimes you feel sick and you don't have time to prepare or you have um, job interviews and that obviously takes priority over um, reading cases sometimes. But it's, it's this situation where um, at least a, a certain portion of the class has to be ready at any given time so that the conversation becomes meaningful. Um, and I think to that extent, like everyone wants to enter a class thinking that they're going to get something out of it. So, you know, at least a certain portion of that group of 93 um, other people in your section need to be prepared um, to get to make the most of the academic experience. So for me, I would say that it's uh, I, I wouldn't call it the most important uh, part of it. I would say that it's potentially like equally important um, relative to like career experiences and social experiences. But I, I would not discount the, the academic journey as well. Um, I think that there's a lot that you can take out of the academic part of uh, the MBA experience. Obviously, you're 
paying for that as well. So you're trying to make sure that you're you're making the most of that um, as well. So for me personally, the way I've uh, thought about it is that there were classes that I was uh, not as experienced with. So for example, finance uh, is not necessarily my strong suit. So I was mostly uh, doing consulting and tech um, in terms of my career path. And so that was something that I really wanted to learn about. And I, I gave a lot of focus there. Um, but on the flip side, I had classes in technology and operations management um, where I was, uh, it, it was very related to my background. So my focus there would be what could I contribute to the class so that folks who had never had this type of background could benefit from my experience. Um, and yeah, I, I thought of the academic experience kind of less about, you know, like, what do I do to study, um, you know, is this a competitive environment? Um, and more about like a give and take scenario where, you know, some some parts of the academic experience, I felt I could contribute more and some parts I felt I could learn from others more. Um, and that kind of give and take made the dynamics just so much more kind of natural and so much less stressful um, for kind of the overall experience. Sorry, that was a long-winded way of me saying, yes, I think it's important, um, but it's it's as important as how much you, you give it uh, time and effort. I agree with you. It, it, for me, it, it was really important because my major in undergraduate was literature. And even though I was exposed to the business world, I worked at... I worked for almost four years at international trading company in Korea, but still, I don't... I didn't have any background or fundamental knowledge about financing, accounting, something like that. So for me, every content in the classroom was really fun. Sometimes it's hard and difficult. And especially I like the operation class a lot. So I got, and as you mentioned, like the classroom in the MBA is not just giving some knowledge to, to the students, but we have a lot of meaningful conversation between students or between professors and students. So there is a, some situation and we can learn something from the situation. I think that's a really good thing. So um, my next question is like, so in case of Ross, we, uh, we take a core classes in the first year mostly, but like in second year, we can choose a lot of electives. What about, what's the structure of the Harvard and like, what is what is your strategy for choosing some elective classes? Yeah, um, great question. So, the the way that Harvard structures its two year MBA program is the the first year is called the RC or the Required Curriculum uh, year, where basically we are all um, so all nine hundred fifty students go through the same classes. Um, so it's all case method. It's all uh, with your section, which is like your your group of 94, 95 uh, people um, in one classroom. Um, well, at least when, when we were in person, it was all in, in the physical classroom. And um, yeah, we'd all take the same classes, essentially. So um, it's, yeah, it's classes in, in finance and accounting and entrepreneurship and operations management. Um, and yeah, the, the structure and format um, is similar. In the second year, which is the, the elective curriculum year, 
um, we get the flexibility to pick which classes uh, are most interesting to us. And we have a system um, which is super interesting, actually. We send in our preferences, and they have an algorithm that kind of decides based on fairness which class you get and which class each student, each student gets. And it's uh, a lot of fun uh, trying to kind of figure out which classes are, are interesting, um, you know, not just to yourself, but also to, to your section mates um, and see which ones you get because of that algorithm. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a tough process to kind of figure out, you know, which classes are interesting uh, and which classes I uh, should prioritize for that algorithm. The way that I've thought about it um, is a function of what I'm interested in versus what the professor in that class has to offer. So, just in terms of what I'm interested in, I uh, I have basically between like. 30 and I think 31.5 uh, units, depending on like the uh, the number of classes I can get uh, for the year. So what I'm trying to do is make sure that the the five or six classes that I take um, per semester covers the broad kind of topics that I'm interested in. So I personally am interested in startups, in tech, in data science, macroeconomics, social entrepreneurship, psychology, behavioral economics, general management. So kind of for each of those buckets, I tried to add in a class uh, that I thought would be really, really interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I put it in the lottery and I'm, I'm hoping that I get one of these classes. And the logic here is just, this might be my last time to actually uh, attend school um, unless I do a PhD, which I'm not sure I will. Um, but if in my head, the question for me is if this is the last time uh, I'm going to school, how can I take the classes that I find uh, are most interesting to me, but also could help me um, in my career longer term? And obviously, like not all of these classes will help with my career, uh, but I think it's important for me to take classes that I'm just um, intellectually stimulated by. Um, and also, I definitely decided to take classes that are taught by very, very interesting professors. Um, there are really legendary professors at HBS um, whose classes I would definitely like prioritize um and so my ranking was kind of based on personal interest and and uh what the professors had to offer the third dimension that is interesting for covid is whether the class would be in person or hybrid um so since i am physically uh taking classes out of my dorm room in uh in the hbs campus i decided to try to get at least one or two hybrid classes um so yeah, that's that's part of my prioritization. By the way, that is really interesting ways to, I mean, the process of the choosing the class by using an algorithm. That's very different from, at least from Ross. So we have sort of like a bidding process. So you, mm -hmm. and as a second year, you have a, um, you have a earlier chances to place a bid um, for your elective. And then you will find out um, after. So, oh, interesting. Ours is a bit different. Like they, they basically give you a random number between one and nine hundred, yeah. <laughs> and it goes down that list. So everyone uh, from number one gets their first choice, and then number two gets their second choice, um, all the way down. So obviously, nine hundred may not get their first choice, but they they could get their second choice, and then uh, on the second kind of round, 
uh, number 900 gets the next one on their list first, and then number one gets uh, last pick. So it, it kind of goes down and then up and then down um, until everyone gets all, all five slots filled up. So it's, yeah. it's slightly different. Yeah, I know. But somehow you can still get like the one, or at least the second one you wanted to enroll. Um, you have, I don't know, better chance? I'm not sure. But I guess either method, they have their pros and cons. Right. Yeah, so... I think... Uh-huh. I, I think it could be a really interesting topic to talk about each school's um, system, how they make the second year elective system, like Harvard use algorithm, Ross use Bs. So I think I, I never expect that every school has a different system for that, but like I got this through this our conversation. So maybe we can do next time like as a special edition, a special episode, just compare each school's, uh, this system and which one, like pros and cons of each system. I think it could be fun. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's a topic not generally publicized. So you guys uh, will get first dibs in terms of like talking about this process. <laughs> it's a cool idea. <laughs> That's awesome. Also wanted to just talk about, like you mentioned about how do you decide like what kind of elective you're choosing. So basically between um your interest or like based on your career so this something also um when i was deciding my class um i was also debating myself about like whether should i try to learn more things that you know i i maybe i'm interested in and then i wanted to you know by taking the class to to learning more skill set or something that doesn't really help um for my career but it could just you know build another different interest or skill set um, the other is just like focus on what I'm going to do after MBA and then just focus on that route. It's very hard. Um, even till now, I'm still struggling. A lot of times I still like debating within myself between which class should I choose. So I guess that would also happen to a lot of um, incoming students when they get to the point that I have to decide um, what kind of elective you wanted to choose because there's so many classes actually. Yeah, absolutely. And what what complicates it even further um, is that, like in in HBS specifically, you can cross register for classes at like MIT Sloan or uh, at Tufts. So, or or even with a general like Harvard network. So I had a friend last year who actually took an undergrad uh, poetry class uh, as one of her electives. So it's really so she was a writer, and it's it's super interesting. Um, it, there's a lot of things to juggle. So for me personally, I, I haven't fully explored it yet, but I'm interested in taking, for example, a data science course at MIT um, because that's something uh, both within my interests and also uh, something that could help me career-wise. Um, and then on, on top of that, there's an additional layer of um, uh, IPs or independent projects where we can basically just work with a professor that uh, who's interested in our uh, our idea where we could either write cases or start a startup um, and yeah, or, or learn something very specific. So there's all these different options. And I think my advice for, um, for students coming in is one is just understand what the universe of like, of, of classes are. Um, and if one particular area is interesting to you, don't hesitate to ask questions um, as early as possible. Like make connections with these professors who you think are interesting and who might be interested in working with you so that, you know, when the time comes that you can pick these classes, um, you have a lot of kind of the background knowledge that you'll need to to be able to make the most of these opportunities. Yeah, that's a great advice. Just be really active on what you do want, especially in MBA or in US in general, I think. 
So um, I think next topic we wanted to talk about is the challenge. It's always fun to talking about challenge. So uh, especially in the classroom. Um, for me particularly, I mean, learning the new subject with um, foreign language is very hard for me. Uh, it takes me probably twice as much time that I need to, to learn a new subject. So I want to ask you, what did you find most challenging for you um, in terms of learning or in the class classroom environment? Right. Yeah. So the the cold call kind of component of the class was definitely like the most intimidating um, at the start of the year. Um, I think it was challenging because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's a function of kind of the pressure to speak up um, at the right time, but also saying something very polished. Um, so the way that grading works at HBS is that um, like around 50% of your grade is determined uh, based on your class participation. And each professor kind of has their own basis for grading. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's this kind of strange mix of how uh, kind of the timing. So when did you say what you said? Also the quality of what you said, did you say something that, you know, was just reading off of the case or was it something that deeply contributed towards moving the case forward? Uh, sorry, the case discussion forward. And also a function of the the way that you said it. So even the the confidence in which you say things uh, sometimes does factor into the grading, and also the the frequency. Um, so if you're talking too much, uh, but you're not saying something very substantive that could count against the grade. If you're not saying enough, um, then again, that counts against the grade. So there's like all of these different factors that you're juggling all the time. So every time you raise your hand, like all of these questions sometimes just bog you down. Um, at least for me, that was a, a huge factor, especially when I was starting out. Like, is this the right time for me to say something? Are my classmates going to think this is a stupid idea? What do I do? Everyone is, sounds like they're so polished and so professional. Um, and yeah, all of these thoughts were constantly like kind of going through my head, especially like the first two weeks. Um, and what what helped a lot, honestly, was prep, at least initially. So I spent way more time than I needed to, I think, reading through the cases, um, answering kind of the preliminary questions that the professors upload um, to make sure that I structure the the things I wanted to say in an organized way so that when I raised my hand, I kind of knew what I had to say. Um, but I think that, that, that helped in the shorter term. What helped in the longer term, I think, was the idea that I was among friends and this was something a bit counterintuitive. Like, I, I didn't expect that the biggest factor that would help me um, ease into the overall like case method experience was just really enjoying the company of my section um, and realizing that you know the the grading system does kind of force professors to rank us based on our uh, our performance. But at at the end of the day, like I am sitting in a class with. Uh, 90 other people, not because this was something uh, I had to do competitively, but something that I actually enjoyed doing. Like, um, I would I would realize that each person in the class has their own kind of personality. Like, some people in the class uh, had very contrarian views, and I would uh, I would like 
read a certain case and realize, okay, this person would probably have this to say, and I'm very interested um, in hearing what they say for this particular class. Um, and I would, you know, like I would come in and just say something knowing that I could say something stupid today. Um, and that's fine. Like, I am among friends, so these people would uh, not judge me based on you know the comment that I'm trying out, uh, which could be great or could be stupid depending on uh, how the class takes it. Um, and yeah, just the the ability to reframe the class um, situation as you know this these people aren't like don't have it out for me. They're not my competitors. They're my friends, and everyone wants me to succeed. So I will you know try my best with with positive um, and good intentions and, you know, hope that the class takes things well. Um, and because of that reframing, I just found it so much easier to, uh, to enjoy the, the class conversation. Yeah, I agree. I think MBA is probably one of the most um, safe place for you to just freely express your opinions or your ideas. And then there's no judge. There, there's no no one would judge you. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And it's the the idea that it's not a competition. Like the sooner you get that in your head, the better. Yeah. Because the the case method specifically is a simulation for real life. Like in a boardroom setting, you're gonna have to deliver tough messages to to key stakeholders. Yeah. And the sooner you adopt that skill, especially in a safe space, the better for you. Yeah, definitely. So um, so I have a follow up question to all of you. So in terms, because you're speaking of like cold call, I wanted to ask you, is there any creative, like most creative or interesting ways that your classmates um, to avoid cold calling or, you know, deflect? <laughs> uh, this, I mean, that's amazing to see how people <laughs> deflect the question. I can, I can just give it one example from my classmates. So um, I know there's a, a, a classmate, I'm not going to name um, he or him, uh, him or she, but... He's always like deflect the question by pointing to other person, other classmates by saying that, hey, do you know, he's an expert in this area. Maybe he can answer the better questions than I do. <laughs> and that's it. And then, then they just move on, like the, the, the conversation just moving to the other person. So is there any... You know, Ooh. Yeah. That, always... that... Go, go ahead, Jay. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ryan. Uh, no, I, I was going to say, like, in, in HBS, that's not going to fly because the professors typically have a list um, based on, like, the, the frequency at which you uh, speak. If you haven't spoken in a couple of classes, they will intentionally call you. So if they call you and you deflect, you aren't getting away that easy. Um. So a uh, bunch of things, actually. So uh, one is if you know that you're, excuse me, if, if you know that you're likely going to get called, um the the start of the case is always the easiest to um to speak in because it's yeah. it's the case fact session so raise your hand early on um <laughs> and make sure that you have something to say and you're done with that class and you probably won't get called again um the there are other sneaky ways so like eye contact is one of them like when professor makes eye contact um they <laughs> you know it, it usually get called so like try to avoid the gaze of the professor um some people have resorted to like lowering their seats a little bit so that they're not uh within the professor's like eye, eye level um yeah there's uh there's a bunch of strange ways um i mean um, at, at hbs one of the 
like if, if you were to be really honest with the professor, you could actually just like come up to them beforehand and say, "Hey, um, I actually did not get the chance to read the the case." Um, obviously, it's not great, but it'll avoid the the awkwardness of someone getting called and them not knowing what to say. And yeah, which has happened a bunch. You guys say every good uh, ways to avoid cold calls. So there's nothing that I can add. But one more thing I can add is like, just be honest. Oh, I don't have good answer for that. Anyone help me? And then you, and Ryan said like we are friends. We are in the classroom, and everyone is our friends. So like when I when someone says like anyone can you anyone can help me, and like there is other friends who can answer that question. So I think that's the one, another way to avoid cold call. Ah, I actually I hate cold call. So like, because <laughs> like like I can say I've never raised my hand voluntarily through my schooling period in Korea, including elementary school, middle school, high school, even in university. Like I never raised my hand. So I got a lot. I got a lot of pressure in during the NBA classroom because everyone raised their hands. Everyone speak up their opinion, but I'm a little bit like nervous. I got nervous when I need to do that. And when I speak up in front of my friends. So yeah, it, this, this conversation reminds me of some bad experiences during the class. I, I want to skip this class. <laughs> <laughs> I know the worry of making a mistake, you know, or make fool of yourself. That's the kind of biggest barrier that avoid us to right. speak up, especially yeah. using like not our native language. But that's something you have to push yourself. Um, I know, and, I know. Yeah. Um, like, like I got, I got a pressure of like saying something right or saying something great. I think that's a that made me nervous because I'm not sure my opinion is great or my opinion is acceptable to others. Yeah. Right. So, but, but what... I, I actually had a professor who once said like, and, and this was for a leadership class. Um, it was a it was a super great class, and the way that she framed it at the start of the semester was. If you um, make a mistake, I will reward you for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, like, depending on the way that the professor structures the class, obviously, like, sometimes it's a little more or less pressure. But the way that my leadership professor um, explained it was, hey, like, experiment on different styles. Like, sometimes uh, give case facts, and that's totally fine. Sometimes uh, say something a little more personal. Like, the way, the more you experiment, the more I will like reward you for it academically. So I think just thinking about it that way, like this is all like an experiment to see how far you can push yourself. Um, and like having fun with it is just such an important part of, um, I think the case method. Yeah, I think that's the one of the thing that we are creating this podcast because that actually it's very, um, I, I think this kind of, um, cultural differences is very rooted in in our culture like not to make any mistake um you know think very well there's a there's a literary saying like the the chinese sayings like think three times before you say anything mm. so you have to like, think, make sure everything is right before you actually open your mouth so that doesn't work here especially in, um, i think in the, in the classroom if you if you think three times the 
maybe the topic has been changed. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's it's very, like, not within... Because uh, the Asian culture is very, like, you know, don't speak up, uh, listen to other people, wait your turn to speak. And, you know, those are kind of the instincts that we have to get over um, in, in this kind of situation. But it, it is good training, though, because I, I do think that that helps us overcome some of these trickier challenges, like in the workplace. So like I, I came from consulting um, and in uh, in the work that I was doing, if I didn't speak up, which was my instinct, obviously, I was um, I, I was educated in the Philippines and we had a very similar um, kind of, you know, try not to speak unless you are spoken to, um, you know, don't kind of don't exceed uh what you think is is right to say um i think just being able to get over that initial hump um from a business point of view is extremely helpful um in terms of your career progression it it, it makes you appear more confident it makes you um like it, it portrays that you have the skills to be a good manager and leader so yeah it, it's it's tough but it's it's an important skill to have yeah. Right. Right. And, and one last thing I wanted to add um, before we moving on is when when Ryan mentioned about you know if you have any difficulties trying to talk with your professor, that's really a great idea because the fact there's and I remember there's one professor um, in the when when he started class um, in the very first class he's speaking to all the students that saying that if you're uncomfortable with call call, just you know write him an email. And then he can do like a warm call instead. So I think what warm call means like you can be prepared. They let you know like when they're going to call you. So you have this like emotionally being prepared. Also like, you know, reading your reading your case before. So I think that's also helpful. Okay, then let us go to the next question. So Ryan from Harvard and Harvard is kind of many many students business no 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 many students dream school so we want to listen to your like favorite class story like is there any class that you liked a lot during your mba first year life yeah um actually really did enjoy the academics in the first year um one of my favorite classes is called biggie which is the business government and international economy class um which is basically we we deal with a country um, every class, which which was super interesting to me. Um, like our first class was on Singapore, um, where basically we we have a case and then we get a brief of like what the country's history was, what the political environment is like, what the economic situation was, um, and we discuss like really really um, kind of deep political and economic um, and even social uh, issues that uh, plague each country, uh, but also what make each country unique and stand out. Um, and what I find awesome is that it's not just your traditional like macroeconomic um, class, but the kind of the lenses are always so different. Like you can't get away with just thinking about it from an economic point of view. There has to be like the, the government component. What is the government doing right and what can it improve on? And the social component. Uh, what are the different hierarchies um, in, in each uh, country? And yeah, it, it, it was super fun because each, uh, if there was a student from that country, they would actually um, deliver like a five minute spiel at the end 
to just talk about what their country is like uh, beyond what the scope of the case has to offer, uh, which was super fantastic. Um, other classes that I think were awesome were finance. So people have always said, like, how can you teach finance from a case method point of view, um, especially at HBS where you can't bring any tech in your classroom. So we had to print out our models um, and bring them to class. So if you have, if you made an assumption that was like a typo, like it, it would be a little hard to follow sometimes. Um, but I don't know, I had like really, really fantastic professors um, and the way that they taught the class was awesome. I don't think I've ever learned um, as much in, in a year um, as I did in, in Fin 1 and Fin 2 um, at HBS. Um, and also like one other classes. Um, the entrepreneurial manager, uh, which is called Tem. Uh, I learned a lot about like how to start a startup, which is one of my interests um, and how VCs work and you know what made some startups successful and uh, what made some fail. Uh, and to me, all that was like super interesting. Yeah, I think once you get into like elective, there's so many classes, so many fun classes that you can, you can enroll and you can learn so many stuff. Um, so I think I think that um, again, really spend time on what class the school can offer is really important because I believe from Ross we have over I would say over like fifty class that you can choose from, maybe even more. Wow. Um, yeah. So um, I think next one, next question. Um, so it's a little tricky question because there's a saying in MBA it's like grades don't matter. But I wanted to ask you, like, in your opinions, did did you really think that grades don't matter, or maybe you have different thoughts? Yeah. Um, so I think for the most part, yes. Uh, I don't think grades matter. Um, and the reason for me saying that is, um, like, when we start school, they kind of put this in our head over and over again. Like, this isn't a competition. Like you know, we are grading you not for uh, for the purpose of like giving grades, but for the purpose of you kind of benchmarking where you're better at and where you think you can improve on or where we think you can improve on. Um, and in terms of careers, like when I applied for my internships, I don't think anyone really asked for my grades. Um, so for the most part, it I don't think it doesn't matter uh, too much. But it does matter um, and is relevant in certain instances. So, for example, um, when I did my internship um, as a product manager for Google over the summer, part of my conversion process involved me providing screenshots of my grades, um, which I think uh, becomes part of the considerations. So that, in, in that sense, it, it could be important. Um, and obviously, like, you need to maintain good grades for, uh, for school. So, like... We have this term at HBS uh, called hitting the screen, uh, which is if you get enough uh, category three grades, which is uh, like being at the bottom, I think it's bottom five or 10% of the class. Um, if you get enough of those, then you will be sent to a, a committee um, and they can decide whether or not you can continue with your education or you need to take a year off. Um, and if you continue, there might be restrictions like, oh, you can't like join uh, club leadership roles. Um, and yeah, it, it just puts restrictions on what you're allowed to do. So um, I guess personally, like, obviously, there's uh, kind of this mentality, especially if you're a student coming from Asia, that grades are super, super important. Um, and sometimes that's a bit hard to shake off. 
Um, but personally, that that was what I tried to do was uh, try not to care too much about grades specifically, um, but try to focus more on the academic experience more broadly. Because um, honestly, like we're all grown up adults here, um, and it would be silly to think that you know we went to an MBA program just to think about grades. Um, so I wanted to frame kind of the the priority, not in terms of getting good grades, but getting a good academic experience, um, which to me translated to like in the classroom, if I wanted to say something, I didn't say it just because, you know, I was going to get graded for it. Um, I tried to only say something when I felt that I had something important to say. And obviously you could get super annoying with this, right? If you were thinking about grades, um, you could just like, raise your hand all the time and say something even if you don't really have anything relevant to say. Um, but I tried to keep a higher bar for myself so that I could enjoy the experience and also my classmates would enjoy that experience. Um, and yeah, so it, it was a tough pivot, but I prioritized academics instead of just grades. I agree with you. Like, even though we cannot say the academic experience is 100% equally equal with academic grades. But if you really briskly join the classroom and making some contribution or having some meaningful discussion with your friends or professors, I think that is kind of way to improve your grade. So I would say like, even though you don't need, like, like the MBA students don't need to focus too much on the grades itself, but having great experience in the classroom makes your grades better. So that's what I want to add. So next question is about COVID-19 situation. Like, you know, because of the COVID-19 pandemic situation, like next year, this year, this coming year, every most of our class will be virtual, which is totally different from ours. Like we did a lot of in-person classes. So... Do you have any specific um, tips for incoming students who will who will have a, most of their classes as a virtual? Like how can maximize their how can they maximize their academic experience during this situation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the biggest challenge for the academic experience virtually is really attention span, or at least I'm speaking for myself. Um, it's much harder to focus if you're speaking to a computer and you don't have like your classmates and your professor um, around you in person. So I, what I've tried to do with myself is just be clear about what I'm trying to get out of um, each class. So... Uh, what I tried to do was set a couple of learning objectives when the pandemic hit and just be clear with myself, like, okay, for this class, these are the things I want to learn. Um, if I get distracted, I'm not going to learn these things. So I need to make sure that I'm uh, I'm paying attention. Um, and also doing like kind of self-check-ins. Um, obviously, you can slip up a couple of times um, and, you know, like, even though it's not allowed, folks would check their phones um, or browse other sites, etc. Um, you need to like be honest with yourself and just know that you know you will slip up and that's totally okay. But directionally, are you making the most of uh, the experience and are you 
kind of achieving the goals that you set out for yourself. Um, if you do that, I think it'll um, kind of just make things easier for you to uh, to make the most of your, your academic experience. Also, providing feedback to professors is really, really important. Um, like, I... Especially last semester when the pandemic hit um, and professors kind of had to scramble to figure out like what works, what doesn't work. Um, I would actually write my professors and say, hey, like you used Google Slides today. I think this was effective, but you could like try to do this thing instead um, to be helpful. Like for the most part, professors would not be used to um, delivering classes online. Um, so if you or your section mates or your classmates realize that your professors could be doing something better, um, definitely like give them the feedback and I think they would appreciate that. Um, I think academics wise, that's, uh, that's my advice, but also just take advantage of virtual events, like outside the academic sphere. Um, there are a ton of, um, events that are being organized for each MBA school. So I, I'm uh, a co-president of uh, one of the clubs, uh, here in HBS and we're definitely organizing a bunch of events online. Um, it's just, uh, while there are a ton of downsides, there are a lot of upsides as well. Like, you get a chance to meet a lot of alums who may not have had time to fly into your school, um, but who now have an hour in their day uh, to to meet you in person, uh, sorry, to meet you virtually. And yeah, it's just fantastic. Make the most of these like virtual opportunities. Um, and if you have time, organize them yourself because, you know, you'll, you never know who you might be able to meet or connect with um, virtually. So our last question, which we always ask this one um, to all the guests. So what is the one thing that you wish you had known before starting the MBA? Yeah. Um, uh, can I cheat and give two things? <laughs> of course. Um, so I think one is, uh, this was the advice I got from my mentor, uh, before coming to school. And I feel like I didn't take this to heart until I actually got here, um, which is be very clear about what you want to achieve before you even start your application. Um, I think like when you come to be school, there's just a ton of things that, um, that start happening. So like even in September, um, some companies already try to do like info sessions, um, Career uh, and recruiting happens quite early. Um, plus, you juggle academic uh, events and also social events. There's just a ton of things that uh, hit you uh, just as you start the program. Um, and there probably, uh, well, at least for me, there wasn't a lot of time to like sit down and reflect on what do I really want career-wise and what opportunities do I want to uh, make the most of. So the more of that you can front load before kind of school starts or even before you start your application, um, the easier it is for you to really maximize um, the opportunities that are available. Um, and the easier it is for you not to get uh, lost in trying to recruit for like all sorts of careers and just making sure that you're prioritizing the ones that you're, you're really into. Um, and second is just don't stress out. I, I recently uh, had a conversation with um, one of the new uh, incoming students, um, and one of the questions uh, he he's um, he's 
joining from the two plus two program, um, where basically you get the acceptance, but you also have like two years of professional experience you can gain. So his question was like, hey, what should I do to prepare? Uh, how can I, you know, be the best MBA student? And my answer was just relax. <laughs> like, this is a great experience. You're going to have the time of your life. You're going to meet like really awesome friends. Um, and, you know, it's not like for the most part, it is going to be um, some work in order for you to make the most of it. But it's going to be a great experience and something you should look forward to. So don't worry too much about the culture shock. Don't worry too much about the language barrier, uh, which is something I think, especially for Asians, it's it's a big concern. Like, will people understand me? Uh, is my English good enough? How do I communicate with these folks? Honestly, just relax. It will all sort itself out. You will meet a group of friends that you will enjoy hanging out with. Um, your classmates will definitely um, be grateful for the experiences that you bring to the table. It'll all be great. So don't worry too much. Enjoy the process um, because when you come in the school, it's gonna be you're gonna have a great time. Yeah, that was that's amazing. That's really good advice, which I I I hope. I mean, I wish I would know before I started my MBA. <laughs> but I wouldn't, you know, don't like spend less time to struggling with recruiting and. More spending time to enjoy uh, my experience here, but luckily I still have one more year, so definitely, uh, and I would you know make the most out of my experience. So sure. I think that um, would be everything for um, today's interview with Ryan. And again, really thank you, Ryan, for you know being on our show and sharing your experience, your stories, and advice to us and to the audience. Thank you for having me. It was really great uh, speaking with you and Jay. And yeah, this was really fun. Today's show was with Ryan from Harvard Business School and Philippines. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. You can find us through all major podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify. New episodes come out every Tuesday, U.S. time. Subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on NBAsians on Instagram and Facebook. And please share it with your friends. Stay tuned and see you next week.